The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout and get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Mississippi. When you hear the name, you think about juke joint blues, the lyricism of William Faulkner, and the white expanse of a cotton crop. But it also gives rise to the seemingly unrelenting hold of poverty and the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. But to the people who live in the state, specifically in the Mississippi Delta, it's home. Despite the economic challenges and the lingering effects of slavery and segregation, the people are something special. They aren't satisfied to be defined by just skin color or class. Many have identities rooted in family, hard work, and the legendary warmth of their hospitality. It's these people and this community that photographer Magdalena Soleil captures in her book, New Delta Rising. Stunningly beautiful images and the stories that accompany them reveal a Mississippi that is as beautiful as it is complex. Mississippi, there's no place like it. Well, thank you for for doing this. Um, I saw your work recently, and uh, almost immediately I knew I wanted to talk with you, but um, having the chance to look at the book, I'm I'm so pleased that we were able to work this out, because this book is is nothing short of amazing. I, it's, it's, it's so wonderful. I, I want to start off, you know, with, with the story of your, your youth, because you say, you say that your parents were, you know, br- brought up in the time of the Spanish Civil War and that you had to leave Spain to go to Switzerland at one point and that you left in the middle of the night. And I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and tell us that story of that night? Oh, that's a tough story. Um, it's, uh, there's like many, many factors that went to it, but basically, um, my father had the opportunity to leave Spain and both my parents were pretty scarred by the, by the civil war, by the Spanish civil war, just the, the uncertainty and, and people who were friends and neighbors killing each other. And they were still children during the war, but. Just that fear kind of leaves a huge scar. And so we, my father, at the the first opportunity that he saw, he was an engineer. He had a job offer in Switzerland. Um, We left. And basically, we left quickly and um, found myself as a child kind of waking up the next day in Switzerland, which was nothing like uh, Spain. Spain at the time was maybe a little bit like Cuba is today. It was like uh, just very um, family-oriented. People lived um, outside, uh, not not outside without a home, but lived outside to see each other, to, to, to eat together, to be 
you know, with family and friends in Switzerland was a much more kind of uh, economically advanced country at the time. So it was it was quite a, a culture shock, I must say. Yeah, that you talk about going to Mississippi to the Mississippi Delta and and feeling like you were home and that that sense of people interacting in public outside not sort of closeted in their homes or their cars sort of speaks to to that experience that you had in your youth in in Spain is, is that the reason you think it it felt so familiar to you when you when you first visited the delta yeah it has the delta to me has kind of a um just is some some beauty that is just kind of sometimes lacking in, in, in the modern world, like in cities like New York City and so forth. Um, it's just a place where people, you know, hang out on the streets and look at each other and say, you know, where are you going? You know, why are you going there? Where are you coming from? And and where people just kind of spend time in in contemplation, you know, for good or bad, but they they have time for each other, for friends, for for neighbors, and I think that that warm kind of embrace is something that felt very much at home and felt very much like my childhood or what I remember from it. Did that feeling of of being in a completely foreign environment when you moved to Switzerland, where you weren't speaking? weren't speaking the language where the whole social dynamic was very different. Was that very difficult for you to sort of adapt to? And did that somehow help you to to get a glimpse or a, a slight understanding in terms of the, the culture, which was very foreign to you when you visited the South? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because when I, I have to confess that when I first visited the South, I didn't understand a word anybody was saying. <laughs> and, um, and I just loved the sound and the melody of the language. But to be honest, I, you know, I recorded many conversations, thank God, you know, and realized later on. And now that I, I do speak Southern language, Southern English, um, I, I understand what people were saying, but it was it was embarrassing at times. You know, this wonderful gentleman was telling me, and and he was older. He was in his nineties, really, and so his his dialect was even stronger than probably most. and And he was telling me the story that he that he actually uh, caught malaria, and that he was his father had to cross the Mississippi River swimming during the flood, and. And all these these horrendous stories, and of course, I didn't understand the word he was telling me, and I would say, "Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nice, nice," you know. And uh, thank God we became friends, and I had some time to apologize for my early ignorance of the language. Um, but yes, it is, I guess, something you know. What we learn as children is is something that that, for good or bad, I think we um, carry with us for the rest of our lives. And I guess as a child, I learned to really feel so comfortable in environments where I didn't speak the language, where everything was foreign to me. And I just kind of, you know, maybe just as pure survival as a child, I, I just learned to really enjoy it. I learned to enjoy to try to mimic the language and the sounds of it or sit on a cherry tree, li- listen to the other kids eating cherries and chattering in a language I didn't speak. And, of course, it was also horrifying at times. You know, the, my school teacher thought I was French, and there was no way of explaining to her that I didn't speak French. But 
didn't, you know, you just kind of adapt as a child and you're extraordinarily resilient, much more than later on. And, uh, and maybe that's what makes me work in, in places like, like that, which just make me inherently feel good for some reason. You said that you like photographing and telling the stories of people who normally don't have a voice. And mm -hmm. do, do you feel that when you were young and you were living in Switzerland and, you know, you were jettisoned into this, literally, this foreign environment where you didn't speak the language, that 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 that's where it comes from that that you know for a short time as you were sort of getting acclimated you didn't have a voice that you didn't you know you weren't seen or or, or treated by people who were natively from from that country maybe you know i never thought about it that way you know and that's completely possible um but it's just maybe that i just find people um so interesting who I encounter in places like the Mississippi Delta or kind of like at the edge of society in places that are not at the forefront of our of our daily lives in the press and so forth and 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 I just like um you know hearing their stories they're so unusual and difficult and and wonderful and I don't know I just feel totally comfortable there um, I, I worked in, in Japan for, for a while uh, at, a, at a place that's really actually a slum, as strange that might sound, for a place like Japan. But uh, it's a place where all the discarded men live that no longer fit into society. And, you know, you look at their faces, you see their smiles, you see their stories and their, their hardship. And, and I just find it so so overwhelmingly beautiful in some ways, you know, their, their lives that, that have been such a struggle and so, and overcome so many things and so worthwhile living that I just find their life so compelling, really. It could be maybe because, you know, as a child, you know, at first I didn't have a voice, you know, when, when I first came to Switzerland, but, um, it, it might have just lasted for really a couple of years, you know, as a child, you really learn the language very, very quickly. But um, you also learn, you know, as a child, I think more than ever, you, you do want to belong and you want to be one of them. And of course, you know, as an immigrant or as a displaced person, um, that's always a very difficult thing. So I have a lot of empathy for, for people in, in minority communities or displaced communities. Tell me about the first time you went down to the Mississippi Delta. You went as part of an, an assignment. It's, tell us the story of how that came about and what you felt when you first arrived there. Uh, the Dreyfus Health Foundation was doing uh, some what they call grassroots efforts in the Mississippi Delta. As, as I'm sure you know, the Mississippi is a very impoverished uh, place in the United States and, and is lacking a lot of things that, that the rest of America has. And so many different organizations really have made efforts there to bring, to bring change and to, and to do something uh, to help the community. And so, and so was the, the Dreyfus Health Foundation was working doing that. And I just went because I, I always wanted to, to visit a place that was called Mount Bayou. I just thought it was the most beautiful sounding name for a town I've ever heard. And I think it's actually one 
of the first African-American uh, communities that established itself in the United States. And um, and so that was just an opportunity. And I, you know, I photographed, taking pictures of that rally. But at the same time, I had a chance to go there and to spend time there and just immerse myself in, in the Delta. And, you know, I met towns. I, I saw towns that were called Alligator. And um, I just fell completely in love. You know, there were those blackbirds that just took off like, you know, clouds of giant mosquitoes. And, um, and the music was just extraordinary. And the food and, and just the loving of the care of the people. I know there's violence in the Delta now and so forth. And, uh, you know, and, um, but for some reason, I, I never saw that. I always saw just the warmth and embracing nature of the people. And how did that turn into the, the project that you've worked on and it's resulted in, in this book? Well, I had, I, I love books. I'm just like, as a child, I was sat in bookstores and, you know, even though I couldn't afford to buy books, I would read them all on the bookshelf right there and then. And so I always thought books were the most beautiful thing. And so I always wanted to, to create a book. And when I, when I saw the Delta, I, I propositioned the, the Dreyfus Health Foundation to, to create a book uh, about the community there. And they agreed. And the book was, was to give voice to the people who didn't have voice, to the people who didn't have a book with their picture in it. And it was so rewarding because the most beautiful thing to me that happened after the book came out was people would ask me for extra copies because they had worn out their old copy, taking it around town and showing people the pictures of themselves, their children, mm. their community. And, um, and one person had actually his, the book stolen on his deathbed and his daughter <laughs> asked me to, to please bring her another one. And, and but it was clearly something that was it, it was not so much the book, but it was that it was them being in the book. You know, it's like nobody ever gets on television who is, you know, who is just like a regular person. And and these are regular folks that that somehow saw themselves, you know, that their lives really mattered. You know. Yeah, I, I completely get that. Uh there's a sense of validation that I think that they probably experienced and that you bring to them. And, and that's one of the things I love about, about the book, because when people think of the Mississippi Delta or, or think of any community where it's infused with poverty, there's so much judgment tied with people who are, who are poor. Judgments in terms of the choices that they've made or mm -hmm. the kinds of lives that they live. And it's really easy to disregard them and to consider them unimportant or people that are, are not really worthy, worthy of attention. And mm -hmm. I think your book beautifully honors these people, especially by the choice that you, you, you make to include their stories in the book and not just the, the stunning photographs that you, that you made. Um, from the beginning, was writing, doing the interviews, writing their stories and including them in the book, was that a, a part of the plan from the very beginning? Yeah, I think actually it was. It, um, we decided that it, it, you know, the book should have photographs, of course, because it was a photography book. But um, I also 
the the people in the, in in the American South are fantastic storytellers, and and from almost the, the very beginning, I I just felt enamored at the way that they could tell stories about their lives and so forth. And so I decided to include it. And you can imagine it's it's difficult, you know, it's like uh, conducting an interview in a language that you don't speak. But somehow, you know, you just march forward and you continue it. And uh, so I did record all those interviews. And um, and then later on, you know, we transcribed all, all the interviews and so forth. And by then I was fluent in the language as well. And uh, and we could put together um, and we could put together the book and, and the stories. And to be honest, I had so many more stories. And not all of them, you know, made it into the book, mm. which which I was sorry about because there's so many stories down there to tell. It's extraordinary. And the other, the other thing is some people actually passed away that, that whose stories are, are in, in the back of the book. Uh-huh. And, and it's, it's a very sad thing. You know, some still made it to, to actually hold the book, but um, uh, some did not. And uh, I still hear their voices. And so I'm very, very happy that somehow their story still was told and, and put somewhere. How did you gain entry in this world? Because I can imagine that people would have been very suspicious, whether they were white, whether they were black, whether they were rich, whether they were poor. You know, having someone, quote unquote, a Yankee come down and uh, <laughs> to, to come down and take their picture is, is, can give rise to a lot of wonder in terms of what, what all of that's about. So how did you how did yeah, you deal that's, with that? that's really true. I mean, I always kind of tried to picture myself like I came from Mars and what the people would kind of feel towards Martian landing on their backyard. Yeah. And, um, and so sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a way to kind of get to, to know people is I would just sit in the, you know, somewhere in the town near the, the grocery store and, and drink a water or something and just spend time there just waiting and then, you know, sure enough, people would come out because there's not much going on in these communities and come look, you know, what is this person doing here? But they give people the time to kind of check me out and see, you know, who I was before, you know, before anything. And just kind of, I think we as humans react so much um, or, or, yeah, toward body language and toward just instinct. And so that sometimes would be then an icebreaker that people would actually come up to me and say, what are you doing here? You know, where are you coming from? Where are you going? You know, why here? And, you know, this is not a place people usually come to. Or I, you know, that would be one approach. Another approach would be I just would walk up to people, you know, young boys who would be playing or something, you know, teenagers. And I would say, hey, you know, what are you doing? What are you playing? You know, where are you going? And um, one time, these, these young boys, uh, African-American, they were probably 17 or 18 or so, they said, aren't you afraid of us? And I, you know, at first I didn't even know what they were saying. And then I said, no, why, why, sh- why should I be afraid of you? And they said, well, usually, you know, white women are afraid of us. And um, I, I just, you know, we had a nice laugh and, you know, and it was just kind of like um, just such a yeah, I, I don't know. It was just such an honor, really, to be led into those communities yeah, and, but that's, and, and to be trusted. That, that's a, but that's such a telling moment in terms of, of the culture, that these kids, I mean, they're kids. And yet they're aware that people 
are, you know, brought up to be afraid of them, even even though they haven't had done anything wrong. And then that awareness is on, uh, they're aware of it, people are aware of it on both sides of the line. Right. You know, right. people have grown up to be, to fear these kids, and these kids are aware that they're, that they are feared. Right, right. And that's, and that's, that's amazingly sad, but was that a surprise to you? Because I, you, like you said, like you said, you weren't aware of, of the culture, but was that, that moment surprising to you? Well, it wasn't surprising, you know, it really wasn't. But, um, you know, I didn't grow up in, in, a, in a place of, of, of racial disparities. So I, I could understand it intellectually, you know, that what they were telling me. Um, but most of the time, you know, when, I'm, when I was in the Delta, I was more aware that I would actually cause a threat than people a threat to me. Because, you know, I could be anybody. I could be from the CIA. You know, some people ask me, are you the FBI or CIA? Or are you here to collect taxes? Or, you know, who are you? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then, you know, some people, you know, are used to getting in trouble with the law. So they, you know, that's what they're afraid of. But I, I realized that actually most of the time people were probably afraid of me. Just, you know, not, I'm this little you know, lady, nothing, you know, nothing scary looking or anything, yeah. if there is such a thing. But, you know, I, 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 one time I had to go to this community to see this, this one woman and they were clearly, you know, they, they, they were like burning a barrel with, with wood and fire and it was the middle of the night and it was kind of like, you know, drugs and the, the works, you know. And I just had to go there. I, I could not. It was in Tatwal, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with the town. It, it has a historic uh, significance in, in, the, in the history um, of African-Americans. And um, so I, I walked up to that group in the middle of the night, and they looked at me, and I, and I said, you know, I hope I didn't scare you. And there was such an icebreaker because everybody just relaxed. You know, but it's clearly, you know, that, um, you know, I think people get it all kind of wrong. You know, I yeah. think yeah, I, I can't even exactly describe what I'm trying to say. But I think, you know, people are afraid of, of me for much more a good reason than I should be really afraid of them. That's an interesting perspective to, to, to realize. <laughs> Especially as the photographer, because you don't think of yourself as a threat. You're just a person with a camera. But the power that that implies, you know, mm -hmm. but your skin color and the fact that you have a camera, there's a certain sense of authority that's assigned to you. Whether, whether you know, you're aware of it or not, or whether willing to accept it, that people find intimidating. And especially people who, for a large part, because of their circumstances, feel powerless. Right, right. Um, right. So how, and how did you communicate to them that what your intentions were? Because, you know, for one, it's one thing to ask someone to make a photograph of you. It's another thing to, to think that these photographs are going to be, you know, presented in a book or in a gallery exhibit or something like that. Did you impress on them that this was something bigger than just you going out there making photographs for your own, for your own purposes? Yeah, I told them that I was working on a book and that I, I was making a book about about 
people who usually didn't have a book made about them. And um, and I said, you know, nobody has to be in the book who doesn't want to be in the book. So, you know, I will ask you again, you know, before it comes out, if you really want this or not. And and they, you know, they said, they looked at each other and said, do you want to be in a book? And said, yeah, I want to be in a book. Hey, why not? I should be in a book too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and And it was just like a very loving and very nice, you know, I don't know, process or something. But but I think, you know, it's all kind of like in your body language and in, in your intentions and in your heart. You know, I think if your heart isn't right in, in doing something like that, it, it comes across no matter what you say. No, because I don't think, you know, a lot of time, you know, I think people um, don't necessarily listen to what you say. They hear what you say. Uh, I don't mm. know. No, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. If you're like me, one of the biggest reasons why you delayed getting a photo website up was that you just didn't have the time. With work and family and everything else, who has the time to sit down at a computer for hours trying to figure out some obscure code or, or learn a whole new bit of software? I know I didn't. But Squarespace helped me to move past those hurdles to create a beautiful site that showcases my photography and every new episode of the podcast. Using its simple drag-and-drop interface and working with a diverse selection of beautiful templates, I was able to create in hours what I'd been putting off for years. And that's the best thing about it, is that I can make changes in minutes and I don't have to call a non-existent IT guy to help me. But find out for yourself how easy and fun it can be. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Um, you, you, like, as you said, you weren't familiar with, with the culture. You, you live in a big city. Um, when you went down there, um, what was your experience in terms of witnessing the impact of the legacy of racism of, of Jim Crow? Um, not just on blacks, but also the, the, the whites that lived in that community. I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, is painfully, uh, touched on in the, in the book is how the basic infrastructure of these communities in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, is still impacted to this day and how it, it severely limits the opportunities that people have, both young and old, for being able to advance themselves or just to be able to make a living or educate their children. Um, when you were down there talking to people and taking the photographs, was that part of your your process of discovery, witnessing that and finding ways to, to document that? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the racial disparity is still, I would say, quite, quite a strong. I mean, more so than I could ever actually imagine in my furthest dreams, you know. There's still one side and the other side of the tracks down south, and they're distinct, you know. One um, might, you know, there's the rich side of the tracks and there's the poor side of the tracks, and often... You know, the, the poor side of the tracks is mostly African-American. 
And there's still like that railroad line that goes through every, through many towns that kind of divides them like that. And yes, of course, the restaurants are integrated and so forth, but it shouldn't even be like, you know, we, we're in the year 2015. You know, we shouldn't even be talking anymore about integration. It's, it's like talking about, I don't know, the, the Stone Age or something. But it still, you know, is in the consciousness of people clearly in the South. And um, much more so than, than what, I, what I imagined. And I know just for saying that, a lot of people would just hit me over the head. But um, the schools are, are mostly um, African-American. Um, the, the white folks down there send their kids to private schools, you know, if they have the means. And the very few uh, white folks that do not send their kids to, to public schools, you know, they're like a 1% in an all-African-American school, which is generally totally um, not, doesn't live up to the standards that schools live up in the North. And, you know, I, I went to an art class down there and they only had pink paper because why, do you, why does everybody paint with pencils on pink paper? You know, what a stupid question because there's no budget to have different paper and that paper was donated. Mm. And we're talking about public schools here, you know, where the doorknobs fall off and, you know, there's no, the toilets aren't clean and, and the standards are just so so far gone, you know, compared to other parts of the country. And uh, it's, it's, it's very sad. It, it, that's all I can say, you know. There's just like these beautiful, beautiful kids, you know. And, yeah. and why shouldn't they have the same that other kids have? You know, one of the things about your, your photographs is that you, you, you document some of that decay or, or the inability to keep things up because of financial reasons, whether it's a, a home, whether it's a, a general store. And you can see that, you know, the place and the location has seen better days. But you do it in a way where some of those images are just beautiful to look at. It, mm. it's, it's, you take something that most people would see as very ugly and you render it as incredibly beautiful. And mm, and I and I wonder, do you sometimes have trepidation about revealing a place like that in a beautiful way, considering the underlying circumstances that lead to to that? Well, you know, I I think a lot of of for me taking pictures also means you know being respectful towards the people and and the people who live there, they don't think, you know, my home is ugly or poor or run down. I mean, they might if they stop and look around, but um, they they like to be represented in a beautiful light, just like we all are. You know, we want to be seen at our best. And I think, you know, when, when people photograph in, in places of poverty and they just make them look worse than they even mm. are, I just think that's that's really terrible for the people who live there. So I do make a special effort that the places look so that people can be proud of them, even though they do lack means, and they do lack infrastructure, and they do look dilapidated. But even that has beauty, and everything has beauty if you just look for it. Yeah, because I, 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 I have no sense that these people feel any shame about being poor. 
there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of dignity that they have. And even yeah. in my life, I've always known that to be the case. I think shame comes from people who feel like if they lost what they have and became poor, they would feel a sense of shame. And so I think photographers that come from that perspective and that mindset create images that reflect what they would feel if they had become poor. That has no real real bearing in terms of what the people they're photographing are actually feeling. And I think that that's conveyed a lot in your photographs, but also in the stories that you include in the book. Mm. Yeah, that's really important to me because, you know, I think dignity is really what what sometimes people, you know, just are, are not, I don't know if you can give dignity, but but I think just these people to me are just externally dignified individuals. And, and if I can't reflect that in my photographs, I really shouldn't be there. I, you know, sometimes, you know, you see pictures of, you know, starving children in Africa and so forth. And you, and, and you think, you know, why do people have to photograph like that? I mean, of course people are starving and, and so forth, and that should be shown. But there is a way of showing it without, you know, taking that person's dignity the way it's depicted, you know, if it's their nakedness or, or, or whatever it is. You know, you can make things so people can still stand up and show the situation, but still be surrounded by beauty and dignity. You're working with a small camera. It's a like a digital camera. And mm-hmm. how, 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 how important was working with a very small, small camera help you in terms of being able to do the work that you were doing as opposed to using, you know, a larger, a larger camera? Well, you know, I work with, with a traditional journalistic lens. You know, you have to get close to your subject and you can't just sit, you know, 500 f- miles away and take a, a photograph of somebody in their home. So you really have to find proximity and, and, and get a rapport. And I think that really reflects a ear in the photograph. So to me, that's very, very important in the process of my work. And also, I think a camera for me has to be small one because I just get too tired if I carry a big camera, very selfish. And two, I, I'd like to kind of become invisible with the camera. I'd like to just be a person who happens to have a camera, but who, who interacts and who is there and who takes part in people's lives and, and not somebody who's just there to kind of take pictures. And the smaller the camera it, is the better really for me and so that's that's why i like the leica actually did you visit people repeatedly or did you often just have one one encounter with people when you were photographing them because i know you you spent about a year on this project yeah i spent a year or two on this project i still go back there you know i there were families that i visited every time and we, we i still see them when i go to the delta and, you know, there were people that I tried to find again that I never found again because people change homes very often. You know, they live in homes that, you know, the, the electric doesn't work, the rent can't be paid, this happened, the other thing. So people move, you know, you know, so frequently compared to anywhere else in the United States. And so sometimes you just can't find them again. Or sometimes, you know, I would walk around with someone's photograph and say, you know where this person lives now and people would take me there. So I do try to actually see people again and again. 
Um, that to me is the most rewarding to keep up with their lives. But but some people I, I only had the fortune to meet one time and, and then just our paths could not cross again. Well, that that makes things difficult when you needed to get model releases after after the fact. So that was like the biggest nightmare I think I've ever had to do. <laughs> Tell us about that challenge because people often ask me about model releases and, and uh, in your particular circumstances, it was particularly important that you, you get them for, for the book. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, it was such a crazy story because, you know, the, the attorneys in New York, they, they like to, to create model releases that are, you know, single spaced, you know, two point size, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. 50 pages long. And, you know, and I said, nobody can A, read this, B, nobody will sign this. And, you know, what are we doing with this, you know? So finally, after much to do, I got them to agree on, on like two paragraphs. I basically said, I agree to be in the book. And, and just kind of the terms, very simple. But by then it was winter. And now you have to know, or you might know, uh, in, in the South, there's, there's not a lot of street lights. And so at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the winter, basically it's pitch dark in the streets. And um, so your day to, to get model releases is, you know, between 8, 9 in the morning to 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then you have to drive several hundred miles in between to find people. So I would literally like work until 9 o'clock at night trying to get everything together and just knock at people's doors literally at 9, that was the middle of the night, and say, you know, I want to put your picture in the book. Would you mind signing this? And and people would look at me first again, you know, like the alien who had to send it from, from outer space. But uh, people were very generous and very, there was one lady who said, no, I don't want my son to be in the book because he's, he's not quite right in his head, she said. And people will talk. And so grandma comes out and said, what are you talking about? You know, he looks fabulous. He should be in the book and made her sign it. And, uh, but it was, it was an experience getting those model releases. I, I really thought I, I, uh, it was, it was tough. It was really tough, not just finding people, but, but just getting it done really. Has that changed your approach? Cause some photographers will get model releases when they're shooting the images. Some will wait after the fact. Um, has that experience sort of changed the way you would, you would do it in the future? No, I mean, I couldn't possibly get model releases. You know, I shot thousands of people and, you know, maybe 60 were in the book in the end, if that. So to get, you know, thousands of model releases from people who, who just don't even, you know, get into the book would have been just too much mm. to, you know, just ha would have totally stopped the flow of taking pictures. So I wouldn't do it differently. I would just pray that I would never have to do this again. As far as <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I can't say enough about how much I love the book. I think it's easily my favorite book this year. Oh, uh, thank you. I, I, I look at at the photographs and I literally just make noises out loud. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. And... I can only imagine you probably took thousands and thousands of photographs that are probably as beautiful as many of the images that are found in this book, but you only had a certain number of pages that you could, could you know, you can actually right. get done. So how hard was it to, you know, go through all those images and come down to the final selections that, 
that make up this book? Oh, it's terribly hard. It's, it's so hard. It's like editing. I find like a whole, you know, if photographing is, is 50% of the effort, probably editing is another 50. And I don't say that lightly because, you know, it's, it's you know, going through the images, separating from images. It's no, you can't always have the, the picture of that person you love so much. And, you know, you, you have to get rid of images you love. That's, I find, the hardest. And, um, and then, of course, come also a little bit of the, of the you know, the, you know the, the organization that funded the book. They had some, you know, even though not many, they were very generous in, in, the, in the freedom that they gave me. But, you know, still, you know, they were, you know, people tend to like, you know, smiling children pictures and mm-hmm. things like that. And, um just because they're non-threatening. And uh, so I, I put the pictures that meant something to me. And, uh, but it, it was a big process. And, and the way I usually work is I, I edit after each trip. I, I don't just spend four months somewhere. I, I spend two weeks at most in a location. And then I come back and I edit the images. And I do this every time. And then I compile a book from from these smaller edits and then begin to assemble it as a whole. You took an unusual path because so many people will go out, work on a personal project on their own dime, put together a a design for a book, and then they'll go out and try to market it. You actually approached someone and said, hey, here's a book that I want to do and got them to sign on. That's very unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. It just, I think it just so happened that our, our kind of goals were just aligning at the time. The organization was really, you know, very embedded in the Mississippi Delta. And I really, that was something that, that I wanted to do. And I'm not saying that that will ever happen again, or that people should try and do it that way. You know, um, I did, you know, have a small mock-up in the beginning that I, that I showed them that, they fell in love with. So you can't just go empty handed and say, you know, just pay for, for a book. <laughs> and, uh, but you have to really, you know, deliver something strong, like a first impression or a first, you know, comp or something that then will want people to kind of sign on to it. What was the reaction to the, the people who you photograph when they got to see a hard copy of the book and they got to see that you actually had done what you had promised? And there was oh. this physical manifestation there. Their pictures were on the page in a book. You mean the the people of the people I photographed or the organization? Right. No, the people you photographed. Oh, they just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just like, you know, they they just and and they still carry that book around. They couldn't believe it, you know, said, That's me, you know, that's that's me. <laughs> And, and it's just like, it was so joyful. And even if it's not them, equally the joy was when, you know, when their children or, or somebody they knew was in the book. Mm-hmm. That was just as important. It was just by association, you know. They would say things like, I'm so proud of him. Look at him. He's so beautiful and he's in the book. So that to me is, is really the best, the best part of it all. Yeah. You know? Probably why I don't photograph flowers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the stories are are wonderful, too. I mean, you have that young girl who's a poet, that woman who aspired to be a doctor, um, Mm. that guy who goes uh, coon hunting without firing a shot. 
Um, that all that's that stuff I felt like was just so great because it gave me a sense of of the Delta and the people in the Delta that the photographs alone would not have been able to do. And I'm sure that those people have come to mean a, a lot to you. Yeah, um, they have actually. They really have. You know, I and I still see them. You know, and I hug them and we hug each other. And it's like family. It's like a family, you know, that's just kind of in the delta. Yeah. And um, and I'm totally probably the most unlikely family member, you know, some some artist from you know from New York City, <laughs> some Yankee up north. But uh, it's we are friends and we're family now. How has this work and these relationships that you've built changed you? I don't know. I think it might have just. It, opened my eyes towards the fact that, you know, family is not, or, or friends are not sometimes the people who you think they are. You know, it can include so many more people that we have so little in common. I always thought friends had to be people who had the same ideals or the same ideas or read the same books or had the same kind of political inclinations and then I realized, you know, that somebody can be a friend just because we like each other. And we have absolutely very uncommon lives, you know, lives that are so different from each other. But that doesn't stop us from, from loving or, or liking each other. Well, the last question I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, um, oh, the list is so long. Well, I have to say, maybe I'm just going to say that, and it's maybe very obvious, but, but a, a dear, dear friend of mine passed recently, and her name is Marilyn Mark. And uh her work is so extraordinary and is so nuanced and so sophisticated and so courageous. I, you know, if you haven't looked at her work in a while, please do, do go back and, and look at it. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Oh, gee, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think people write stuff about me and, and, you know, and, and my book and so forth. And, uh, Sometimes if you Google me, you, you see things. I, I surprise myself sometimes with things I have no idea are out there. So, but uh, I'm always encouraging people to just uh, check out my website and email me. My email is there if they have any questions or, you know, would like to do anything whatsoever. I'm, I'm a pretty open individual and, and open to, to other folks. And, and also believer that photographers should help each other. I'm not a believer that, you know, if you succeed, it takes something away from me, but the opposite. I think um, we are all a community and we should really make sure that as a community we grow. Well, Magdalena, thank you for making the time for me this morning. It was, I really enjoyed having the chance to talk to you. And again, a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. And I have to say, you know, you're so insightful. I'm, I'm so surprised at your questions. Um, it feels like I've known you for a long time, so it's, it's just been a real pleasure. Thanks again for joining me. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, 
Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows of your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.